After more than a year's worth of not many gatherings happening, this weekend it is happening. So many wonderful things converge on this one weekend. If you're thinking what I'm thinking, it's the sixth Sunday in the season of Eastertide. We're still shouting Christ is risen and singing Alleluia songs. And you may not be aware, but this is also Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day. Here's a picture of me and my mom from 25 years ago. Hopefully, families will be gathered gathered, good food will be enjoyed, words of encouragement will be offered. It's also, if you're in West Michigan at least, tulip time. The carnival has arrived, the food carts are here, the the tourists are blocking every intersection we're trying to get through and the tulips are reaching their blooms to heaven on a sunny afternoon. Pillar plays its part in the tulip time festivities. Each day of the week, we host tulip time tours. People literally from all over the world pay to get here and pay to come on a tour that brings them to Pillar Church where they hear the story of Pillar. People from India and New York and Texas and Delaware and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, a lot of Wisconsinites and northern Indiana all gather in the pews of our sanctuary to hear the story of God's unfolding grace in this place. It's actually crazily ironic to me. So we tell them about 1847 and the establishment and then 1856 when this building was built, one of the oldest buildings in the city of Holland, the first church in Holland. We talk about the fire of 1871. We tell them about the division of 1882, the axe handles and the chains. And we talk about the reestablishment in 2012. I won't force you to endure the entire tour now, but there is a little moment in the pillar story that seems to me uniquely fitted with a letter written to a church dictated by Christ, transcribed by St. John, recorded in the book of Revelation. It's the letter to the church in Pergamum. It was offered first to the church in Pergamum, but I think it might also be for the church of pillar. Listen to the letter. We'll get back to tulip time tours a little later. I, John, your brother, who share with you in the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice from behind me like a trumpet say, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man dressed in a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnt Furnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face shone like the sun at full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He reached out his hand and said to me, Do not be afraid. For I am the first and the last. I was dead, but now I am alive, and I live forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Write what you see, what is, and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, 
writes. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you're living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name and have not renounced faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice fornication. There's also some among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the two-edged sword. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone, and on the white stone written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20, and chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you want to hit pause and find it in a Bible near you, but come back. I've got a few things to show you. The context of the letter to the church in Pergamum is surrounded by six other letters written to six other churches begging all of us to pursue unity. And the specific details of the letter to the church in Pergamum is calling us to pursue holiness. Unity and holiness, those are the railroad tracks down which this sermon will roll. Unity. It's on God's heart that the church would be one. Uh, Too often and too quickly, the unity of the church is sort of reduced to a live and let live kind of faith, kind of, it's another way of saying anything goes, you can't really hold anybody accountable, it would appear for the sake of unity. On the flip side, though, there's this tendency to, to have a hyper privatized, individualized, pietized Christianity that has to dig in its heels and fight and stand up. All the while, it's on God's heart and it's on Jesus' mind that we would be one. Jesus, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, who also happens to be the seer of this vision, prays a prayer that we would be one. He says that they would be one. We, us, you and me, would be one as the Father is in me and I am in him, that they may be in us so that the world may believe. Just about 10 minutes before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, and finally crucified, he prays that we would be one. The unity of the church is not a happy circumstance for a few of us to cultivate when we all agree on everything, but rather the pursuit of our lives. That we would be one. If you don't want to take my word for it, how about Leslie Newbegin? In a book titled The Household of God, the church's unity is the sign and the instrument of the salvation which Christ has accomplished. In so far, I hope you're seated, in so far as the church is disunited, her life is a direct and public contradiction of the gospel. Wow! New Begin is not messing around because Jesus is not messing around and we should stop messing around the unity of the church. 
John's given this glorious vision of Jesus. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shone like the sun at full force. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He reached out and said to me, do not be afraid. For I am the first and the last and the living when I was dead, but now I am alive forever and ever. And each, that's the vision that precedes the letters to the churches. And each letter to each church is given in its introduction a a portion of the whole description. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who has the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of him who is the first and the last who was dead and came back to life. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And we'll get to the rest of the letters later. Each church is given a portion of the full description, but only when the church is united, only when the church is all together, does the world get to see the whole picture. Insofar as we are disunited, divided, fractured, split. We do not offer a watching world the glorious vision of Christ it needs to see. When we're disunited, that does not make Christ disunited. He is distinct from the church, but the witness we offer to the world is a truncated version, one of Jesus when we're apart. It'd be, it'd be like looking at yourself in the mirror After a hot shower in a small bathroom, you can see something's there, but you have no idea what it is. The context of the letter to the church in Pergamum is begging us to pursue unity. Uh, New begin again. I wouldn't put it this strongly, but he does. Any breach in the unity of the church is a violent contradiction to the very heart of the gospel. There is only one Christ, and he has only one body. For his members to be divided from one another is to divide Christ. That's stronger than I would say it, but that's the way he puts it. And John sees a vision where each church is given a portion of the full description, but only when we're together does the world get to see it all. I'm talking about the way we interact with one another in this highly polarized, extremely tense, mask or no mask kind of culture. I'm talking about the way we interact with other church communities in our geography, in this hyper-consumeristic American Christianity. I'm talking about the way we listen to and collaborate with the global church in in our tendencies to offer a colonizing Christianity. It's on God's heart, it's on Jesus' mind that we would pursue unity. So we've been doing these tulip time tours, it kind of cracks me up. People from all over the, India, people, multiple people from India are in our sanctuary on a Sunday or, or, or each day of this week listening to us share the story of God's unfolding grace in the life of Pillar. So we tell them about Van Ralty in 1847 and the log church. We talk about the secession of 1857. We talk about the division of 1882, we talk about the axe handles and the chains that were used to keep people out. People get kind of quiet when they hear about that kind of violent division. The Holland City News described it in the March edition of 1882, described it as a riotous disturbance. People get quiet as they listen to that part of the story. 
I interpret their silence as understanding. They know division two. They know the heartbreaking, heart-aching realities of fractured relationships. Then we tell them about Pillar's decline and its ultimate crisis, and I tell them about the Sunday in 2012 when Pastor Chris DeVos, CRC pastor, and Pastor Dan Gillette, RCA pastor, stood on a platform very much like this one and publicly apologized for the division of 1882 and for allowing us to remain divided for 130 years, and I tell them about a baptismal font made out of axe handles and chains, allowing us to borrow from the prophecy of Isaiah, your swords will become plowshares, your spears pruning hooks, and we add your axe handles will become baptismal fonts that's who we are that's what we're about that's what we tell tulip time tourists we do pursue the unity of the church it has to do with the way we relate with one another it has to do with the way we engage other churches it has to do with the way we collaborate with the global church it's on God's heart it's on Jesus mind let's get after it to the angel of the church in Pergamum Right. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword of the angel of the church in Smyrna. Right. These are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came back to life to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. These are the words of him who holds. You get my point. Insofar as we are divided, we offer a truncated version of the vision of Jesus Christ. Unity and holiness. The context of the letter calls for unity. The specifics of the letter call for holiness. Shouldn't those two be different sermons? You know, unity and holiness kind of don't seem to go together. Unity is kind of this like laissez-faire, live and let live kind of life. Isn't that right? You can't really hold anyone accountable if you're going to stay united. And holiness, isn't that the digging in your heels, kind of standing up for the truth, standing up for what's right at the expense of relationship, just so long as you're right? Well, Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Jesus doesn't seem to think they're polar opposites. Jesus seems to hold them both together and asks us to do the same. Holiness, he says, I have a few things against you. They had conceded holiness. Holiness, not this like super spiritual life that none of us could ever live. Not a holier than thou, but rather a set apartness. They had conceded holiness. They had been co-opted by the cultural stories the cultural climate, they, they had accommodated. I have a few things against you. They weren't living by a different story. They weren't telling a different story, a more beautiful story of God's heart for the world. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before Israel so that they'd eat food, sacrificed to idol and, idols, and practice fornication. You also have some among you who hold fast to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Balak was the king of Moab while Israel was wandering in the wilderness. As they're wandering in the wilderness, God provides water from the rock and manna from heaven and deliverance and protection from their enemies and the Israelites begin to grow even in the wilderness and their growth became strength. So Balak, the king of Moab, grows uncomfortable with Israel thinking they might run Moab down. So he summons Balaam, the sorcerer, to curse the Israelites. The problem for Balak and Balaam, every time Balaam opened his mouth, instead of curse, out came blessing. So Balaam and Balak devised a plan. Let's seduce the Israelite men with the Moabite women. If you can't beat them, join them, basically. Or maybe better, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. 
let's seduce them. And the Israelite men were seduced. And if you want to sleep with our Moabite women, you've got to worship our Moabite gods. And it's not that they renounced their faith in the God of Israel, it's just that they kind of added a few more. No blood, no foul. They co-mingled their lives. They, they just kind of went the way of the cultural script. They just kind of they conceded their set-apartness. They conceded their holiness. And Jesus says, as John writes, repent, or I will come to you soon, and I will wage war against them with the sharp two-edged sword. And the push and the pull towards concession and accommodation is as alive now as it was then. And the call is for us to live a different story, to tell a different story, holiness, to tell a more beautiful story the world is longing to see, where you, just because you want it doesn't mean you can have it. Just because it feels good doesn't make it right. Just because you may have an instinct or an impulse that draws you to something doesn't mean people should keep you from it. That's the same old boring story the world's been telling, and the call of the gospel is holiness, set-apartness, a charitable holiness, a generous holiness, but a different kind of story the world is longing to hear. So people are coming from all over Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Texas, Wisconsin, northern Indiana. It's wild to me, all of the different people who show up in this sanctuary each day of the week to hear the story of God's unfolding grace in the life of the pillar community. And I'm happy to share it. So we tell them about 1847 establishment and the 1850 union when we joined the Dutch Protestant Reformed Church in America and the secession of 1857 when we started a new denomination called the True Dutch Protestant Reformed Church in America and everybody kind of chuckles. And I tell them about the division of 1882 with the axe handles and the chains and we talk about open or closed communion and everyone sort of thinks that's archaic and silly that argument. We tell them about the division between public and private schools and everyone sort of rolls their eyes. Yeah, we know that story. We tell them about the arguments around music. Can we sing those progressive hymns or do we have to stick with the Psalter? And everyone sort of knows about churches fighting around music. And they can kind of brush it off. They can kind of blow it off. And then I, I try to help them understand how tense it was by suggesting it'd be a little bit like the polarizations we experience now, masks or no masks, and everybody starts to understand. So we tell them about Pillar's decline and its ultimate crisis. Should we lock the doors? Should we give the keys to the city of Holland? Maybe we could hold tulip time tours all the time. And then we tell them about a day, August 26, 2012, when we decided to tell a different story. When we built a baptismal font and a worship service out of axe handles and chains. And I, I kid you not, people hear the story and they cry. They cry at the beauty of a different story. Or, or they, if they don't cry, they applaud. One woman said, can we clap in this sanctuary? People are longing for a different story, a better story. The world is in desperate need of a better story, a different story. Why not here? Why not us? Let's not concede and accommodate to the cultural scripts and the cultural narratives and the cultural climate. Let's be a different kind of people, a generous holiness, a charitable holiness. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you soon. 
and I will wage war against them with the sharp two-edged sword. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.